for him, for him, for him. I wake. TV's on, the volume cranked, laugh track swelling, open mouths. The living room's dark save the glow of the screen. Me and Lil tangled up on the couch, nice and cramped. Her face with her hair falling over her cheek. The eye that shows twitching in sleep. Shadow on the TV screen. I can't look up. Not yet. It shifts. Laugh track peaks. There's dopey music. The shadow grows darker somehow. Malign weather. I think I can look up. I think I can face it. But when I do, it's much worse. The lumpen and strange silhouette of a dwarf. Stove pipe hat upon his head. The top of the hat is vertiginous. Endless. It stretches away towards the ceiling, beyond it. While next to the dwarf stands the camera itself. Of the wet plate variety. Housed on a tripod. Camera cloth hangs from a hook in the back. Since we have no magnesium lamp, says the dwarf and gestures at the TV screen, this infernal contraption will have to suffice. The dwarf huddles under the claws. Now say cheers. Cheers, I yelled and woke myself. In the real world this time and Lil shifted beside me. Just like in the dream we had fallen asleep on the living room couch in a tangle of limbs. And yet the TV was turned off. It was dark. Extricating myself, I walked into the kitchen. The oven time was 3.15. The wormhole that led into Belloc was deep, and I entered it frantically, not looking down. My laptop on one hand, my books on the other. I took over the central room where I wouldn't wake Lil when I sorted the puzzle. The hydrocephalic dwarfism was bunk. Belloc had been quite the dandy in life. He'd been short, but good-looking, with downturned mustaches, dapper with precision timing. He wore a fedora, the brim tilted up. By the time he was sixty, they called him Old Belloc, which seemed to me a mark of grace. He liked a striking set of clothes, eleven diamond horseshoe stick pins, gold cameo cufflinks with matching tie clasps, red scarves like a murder enclosing his neck. The circumstances of his death were strange, and yet also depressingly average. The morning had seen him on multiple errands, purchases at camera shops, deposits at one of a few local banks where E.J. Belloc held accounts. At lunch he hit a vendor's cart to purchase that day's share of jelly orange slices in spite of chronic diabetes. In the Kodak storeroom he indulged in a snooze, but because he snored loudly the boss 86 him. What happened next, and where, is muddy. In any case, the guy dropped dead at one of three proposed locations. At the top of the steps of that same Kodak store. At the top of the steps of his tiny apartment. Face first on Baran Street. Crowd surging around him. All three accounts had him hitting his head. It was a forehead high and broad and handsome by that decade's standards. Although not the forehead of a hydrocephalic condition which, soon after birth, would have killed him. When he fell, he was wearing a rope for a belt, resolutely at odds with his dandy persona. Much would be made of this detail post-mortem to show he had fallen on difficult times. 
They discovered the Storyville photographs later in Belloc's impoverished and musty apartment. They were ruled pornographic, illegal at first. Decades later, works of genius. One of the photographs shows a nude woman on another divan with an arabesque pattern. A carnival mask hides her eyes from the viewer. She smiles in resplendence, displaying her teeth. Not her face, but her happiness. That's the enigma. It appears as though Belloc is making her laugh. It was Emily Dickinson syndrome writ large. In life, you're no one. Then, you die. I thought about X and the drainage project, where the worker had broken his back in the fall, trying for the perfect shot when in truth it was right there in front of his face. I paced the room. I mumbled things. I had a beer, then switched to coffee. Belloc was discovered, I thought, after death. Fame wasn't something he'd gotten to savor. It was almost as though in the moment he dropped, he had made a decision. My life or my art. He would live through the next day, the day after that, so on and so forth for a few decades more, or he would quit the world right then to return on the lips of the world yet to come. Around dawn, scarlet-eyed and insane with iced coffee, I burst into the living room to share what I had found with Lil, but she'd managed to sneak out the door in the night. All that was left was the smell of her camels, the mugs that she'd ashed them in, emptied and rinsed. That and my dress shirt laid out on the couch in an eerie reminder of how they'd found X. I'm sure that she hadn't intended it that way. This was how the day began. I needed a wash, so I took one. Rob called. The next thing I knew, we were back in the Mazda. It was over a hundred outside, the air blasting. Rob was telling me something important, I guess. Some lead he'd uncovered on Cleveland and X, but I was too drowsy to follow his logic. I just wanted to rest my eyes, but when I woke up, we were idling somewhere. The AC was freezing the sleep sweat on me. How long have we been here? Where are we? I said. We're at Cleveland School, like I told you, said Rob. Isn't school out for the summer? I said. That's what you said before, said Rob. I smacked my lips and peered around. An awful nap taste had invaded my mouth. I played clarinet in high school, Rob continued. Pretty much every kid in this town plays at something. Public school, private. We all in the band. And let me tell you, summer's off. That's just an expression for too many teachers. Way, way back before the storm, and now with the charters, the gig never ends. Lesson planning. Summer school. At-risk kids need some place to cool. Besides, they keep the building up. And you would know this how, I said. Not every black kid is at risk, answered Rob. We sat in the coolness, collecting ourselves. I got to ask you one thing, Jim. Are you okay to do this now? Right? I cracked my joints. As rain. You were driving before, and mid-sentence you're out. He slapped his knuckles in his palm. I kid you not, he said, like that. And then you slept. He checked his watch. We've been here almost two hours now. I had bupkis to say on that. Sure, I was even a little bit touched. Rob had been idling the car for two hours just so I could catch some Z's. He had no book. His phone was off. He had the radio turned down. 
Suddenly, I felt ashamed for having questioned him at all. At long last, he killed the AC, then the engine. Sheepish and dry-mouthed, I whispered. You got it. Renaissance 65 had a fallout zone vibe, especially now at the height of the summer. The guard at the door waved us through wearily when Rob said we were from the press. The hallways were wide, with enormous reverb, the royal blue paint on the walls in decay. Floors of concrete, echoing. A Soviet M.O., gray cameras in corners. At the bases of walls, there were homework assignments scrawled over and read with the same Chandraneka. We were taking a tour of the high school, not speaking, hopeful of finding the band's practice room when a bluesy and faint melody started up, echoing among the halls. We followed it mutely, intensely, got lost, ended up in a far room bereft of AC where a red hazard light had been left to malfunction before we doubled back again. The tune was Coltrane, Taylor, something. The band practice room, when we finally arrived, held a man on a stool. He was playing the sax. He was one of those nice-looking older men who could be anywhere between 40 and 60. In spite of the heat, he was smartly turned out in a navy polo and a pair of silk khakis. The blues refrain was beautiful. It filled the room to overflowing. It was dirge-like, hard-bitten, and mournful as hell. Until the last echo, he didn't look up. You bring those music stands, I ordered. We've come here to talk about Cleveland, said Rob. But the fellow appeared not to hear him. Well, shit. Fun's allocation went through in the winter. We hear he played tuba in your marching band. You cops, said the man. Negative. We're the press. He watched us a moment, his mind calculating. You tried turning pages and playing the horn while texting and checking your Instagram feed. These kids need an anchor. A stand will do that. Roots you. He showed us his palms. To the spot. You put that on your lead, we'll talk. I would, but it sounds like its own feature piece. Music stands cure fickle youth. Rob seemed to get through with that bit of smart assing. Come on and take a stool, he said. He looked up at us. In his eyes, there was kindness. That and a kind of careworn devastation. Cleveland and Jarrell, he sighed. I'm sorry to say they were two of my best. Two heavies, said Rob. That can only be one. Cleveland and Jarrell were friends. Always, I told them, we march as a unit. Ain't nobody letting down nobody's tires. Ain't one of you blow better horn than the next one. A lot of the time, though, I lied about that. In every band, there's special cases. Cleveland and Jarrell were those. Not only when it came to music. Good academics, I said. And good kids. You bet they were, said the marching band leader. No two better boys in the class of 15. Frankly, I still can't believe that it happened. It's been 24 hours, but no way, man. No way. The mind, pointed at his head, can bend itself only so far around something. Lots of boys from this school come from hard circumstances turn into hoppers to make extra cash, and the next thing you know, they're dropouts. Then they're dead. Well, not Cleveland, and not Jarrell. You were playing the sax in their honor, said Rob. Sending my blessings out into the world. What we can't figure out, I said, is even if they had some beef, 
Why do it where everyone breathing could see? Both boys graduated in June, am I right? Graduated, accepted to college, the works. Wrote letters for both of their asses myself. Why, it don't make a lick of sense. They were different, of course, but that doesn't explain anything. What Cleveland did. We hear he liked to party some. A teacher only sees so much, but Cleveland was popular, that I can tell you. Jarrell soaked up the sunlight he didn't absorb. He always brought Jarrell along. You know they grew up in the Treme together? Ain't easy to do that and turn out like they did. It's holdups and murders from Johnson to Broad. A couple of days ago even, that stabbing. Some kind of reporter like y'all, wasn't he? Cajun Rob nodded slowly. A fellow freelancer. I'm sorry to hear that. Sincerely, I am. Summertime comes and the good Lord gets greedy. Was Jarrell ever jealous of Cleveland? Vice versa? Jealous seems a stretch to me. Maybe wary when Cleveland would really get going. Fat-headed showboating. Jarrell rolled his eyes. Could it have gone possibly further than that? I asked. Further in what sense? He responded. Jarrell gets some intel on Cleveland, said Rob. Something maybe that Cleveland's ashamed of? Confronts him. So Cleveland, he loses it. Second line. Boom. A teacher sees only so much, like I said. It's certainly hard to imagine, he said. Being as close as the two of them were, you wouldn't think they would have much to keep secret. Make any new friends in the last year or so? An older man, maybe, I said. They looked up to? Apart from myself, I can't rightfully say. You see them much outside of school? Son, said the teacher, just what are you saying? He shifted towards me on his stool. He was pointing his sax mouthpiece at my face. What Jim here means to ask, said Rob, giving me a little side eye, is what were their extracurricular habits? They did the stuff all young kids do. Hell, I don't know, they hung around. Skateboarded in Congo Square, messed around in the quarter, played video games, visited grandma together, okay? Together? I said. Sure enough, said the teacher. The grandmothers lived in the same nursing home. Me and Rob looked back and forth at each other. Which nursing home was that? Said Rob. Seven Oaks? Three Oaks? I can't remember. Uh, Matre, I'm pretty sure. Drove Cleveland out there once myself when he stayed late for football practice. Him and Jarrell would meet there, stay for dinner, then take the bus back to Treme for the night. And that was once a week? I said. In the first couple years of high school, I believe. But then, senior year, they would go there more often. I think Jarrell's grandma was starting to slip. Often, as in twice a week. Sometimes even three, he said. Did they ever tell you what they did there? Said Rob. Sit in with their grandmas who lived there, he said. Chinese checkers, I don't know. What is it exactly you think they did? What everyone does with his grandma, said Rob. Plot the murder of a friend. Murder, said the music teacher. Jarrell isn't dead. Not yet he's not. No, like, really isn't dead. I spoke with his mother this morning. He's stable. No shit, said Rob. Well, that's good news. The music teacher sucked his teeth. That's certainly a point of view. When we left Renaissance 65 for the day, we drove around to clear our heads. As soon as Rob started the car to get going, I googled Amelia Kent on my phone. Properly speaking, 
Amelia Kent's murder, and sure enough, the nursing home that she'd taken the bus to the streetcar to work in was called Seven Oaks, like the teacher had said. It was in Matray, off of Veterans Road. The website described it by way of the tagline, where angels assemble to carry you home. If they hadn't already, it wouldn't be long before a homicide also uncovered the link, so me and Rob figured we had to work fast if we wanted to see what it meant for ourselves. Clearly, Cleveland and Jarrell had had something to do with Amelia Kent's murder, whether or not they had iced her themselves. X talking to Cleveland about this and that was more than just coincidence. He had known that the boys were involved in the killing, or anyway, had some suspicion, and he had discovered the self-same connection that we had discovered and followed it out. What he'd said about evil parading made sense. Evil had swallowed up two decent boys and made them act against their natures. Evil was him, the corrupter. But who? So Cleveland and Jarrell kill Kent, and X finds out, Rob mused. But who kills X? Cleveland maybe too, I said. X was snooping around in their homicide business. X was a snoop, but they call him a snitch. They even write it on the couch. They make the scene look sex-related. Maybe cast some blame on X? Jarrell gets chilly feet. Kaboom! So Cleveland kills not only Kent, but X, and tries to kill Jarrell? Cleveland, the New Orleans Ripper. We both shook our heads. It was fucking insane. Lafayette Cemetery was up on our right, its stone angels watching us over the walls. I began to regret my withholding on Belloc. Why hadn't I mentioned it? Why had I balked? Withstanding Rob's critical thoughts on the subject, which were useful to me under most circumstances, my isolation on that score had started to make me feel mildly unhinged, as though I were wrapped in the kind of delusion the heroes in horror films shouted at walls. I could have told him days ago, and yet I'd elected not to for some reason. Unless I did pretty soon, it would only be me and the dwarf going forward. The never-ending stovepipe hat, the possum's teeth inside the mouth, the head in its curtain of swaying dark cloth, as though someone, or something, some puppeteer's hand had traveled down to scratch it out. We drove around a couple hours, but puzzling only begat more of the same. I had to clear my head some more, and I had Cajun Rob drop me off at the movies. Of all things, a five o'clock angel heart screening at the grand old Britannia up by my house. We'd have to go to Seven Oaks to talk to the staff and the kids' grandmothers, but that was for another day, we both agreed, when we were fresh. Join me for the flick, I said. I'm tempted, said Rob. Rob needed some shut-eye, too. He left me to sit in the dark by myself. I remember the movie for being disturbing, but this time I just found it sad. Mickey Rourke, he tries and tries to finger the perp, to be somebody better, but in the end, it's him alone in the New Orleans darkness, berating a shadow. As credits rolled, I texted Lil, but received no response. When I arrived back home that night, I was so melancholy and overextended, I almost didn't see the man leaning up on the side of the black SUV directly in front of my hurricane doors, a bright and expensively pungent cigar hovering in the dark at the height of his mouth. In fact, I only noticed him because he whispered something at me. Or not whispered it really but said it real mellow sorry to hear about your friend
Beg your pardon? I said. It was tragic what happened, said the visitor. For a moment I thought I was going to be mugged or something far more inconvenient, but when I stopped to study him my mind kept drawing eerie blanks. There seemed to be no place for him on this down-at-heel street in the Garden District. Indeed, he would have made more sense at a country club mixer for Ole Miss alumni. His face was square-jawed and disarmingly handsome, matinee idol-esque with a hard finger wave. He was wearing a tight-fitting white polo shirt and pleated navy docker pants in a way you could see he took care of himself, his pecs and thighs just saying, Hey. The SUV he lounged against was a black Escalade with a tint to the glass. I assume you're referring to Chinsky? I asked. I always thought they called him X. He always called him X. It stuck. You know the boys sure got that carnival streak. I'm sorry, I said. Do I know you? You will. I'm a fan of your work. I'm not sure if I mentioned. He unfolded himself from the side of the car and began to approach me. His palms opened out. Because he skewed me out a little, I backed a few paces towards bustling St. Charles, two blocks due east from where I stood with the logic if things took a turn for the worse, I could hightail it that way, flag someone down. My work? I asked. Your photographs. The footage you shot of that cesspool, he said. The moldering, decadent ways of mankind. You capture it with rare panache. Okay, I said. I stopped retreating. You're telling me this now because... Excuse me, said the lounging man. I'm with WBRZ2, Baton Rouge. Care to prove it? I said. He extracted his card. In a silica rail font, it read, Bo Furlisher. Assistant producer was under the name. The capital scoop, I said. All right. We work with what we've got, he said. Though Baton Rouge ain't New Orleans. Not in terms of violent crime and not in terms of, well, you know. He fluttered his fingers. That je ne sais quoi. So X made it to Baton Rouge? Oh, you know he did, baby. We're famished out there. And anyway, it's primo news. So he probably was who he said after all. Calling New Orleans Nola, the prepster get-up, talking like he was Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire. Still, there was something about him. A texture. A glaze or a patina that wasn't quite right. Not to mention the black Escalade he was driving which dreadlocks had seen on the night of the murder. The first chance I got, I would step off the curb and give its plate a long, hard look. The man in the polo and blue docker pants puffed big medicine on his stogie and smiled. A gentlemanly proposition. He sauntered around to the back of the car, opened the trunk with a bleep from his key and hauled a bag of Hanma golf clubs from the bed of the trunk to the edge of the curb. You like to shoot the green? He asked. Golf's a good walk spoiled, I said. And when he frowned, Mark Twain said that. Well, how about these odds, he said. You see that vacant over there? He pointed away from St. Charles through the dark to the half-shrouded husk of falling down house. A fire had claimed it some weeks back all the way to the roof, which collapsed through the middle, the FD pumping water into absolutely no avail. 
Already unlovely graffiti and weeds had claimed the first story en route to the top. If you can drive this ball, he said, and held it for me on the platform of his fingers, through the roof of that house over there, here's the deal. I'll pay ten large, you count it, ten, for the next heavy break in the Vaughn Chinsky case. And if I miss, I said and chuckled, which you should know, I probably will. Then I get the intel at a price of my choosing. Fuck, I said in wonderment then. Fuck, again. No fucking way. So we don't have a deal? Said the man with the club. He unzipped the bag and he took out the driver, letting it swing playfully at his feet. Listen, this was fun, I said, but I have to be getting inside. And I turned, but the prepster caught up with me, ditching his clubs, which slumped against the car's back wheel, and grabbed me by the left shoulder. Okay, he said. No deal, no problem. Let's drive that bad boy anyway. Looking into his face with its two, two good looks and the unholy eagerness lighting it up, a what-the-fuck feeling came over my soul. Sure, I said. One drive, why not? Capital, said the man, and zipped past where I stood to the back of his car where he stopped and knelt down. He carefully arranged the ball so its path through the air, if sufficiently hit, would line more or less with the roof of the house, and took a step back from the side of the tee, presenting the driver to me like a showman. As I walked towards that spot in the New Orleans street, uncertain of what brainless whimsy possessed me, I saw the man's smile magnified twenty times, teeth flashing at me as he nodded his head. The arm with the driver swung back like a hinge. I took the thing and twitched my hips. I felt good in my hands, like my destiny seized, little did I know just then. I cocked the driver back and swung. Not bad for a guy who held golf in contempt, the white ball arching through the night over phone wires and rooftops and rusted out cars, over satellite dishes and molting palm trees, right in through the hole in the top of the house. We could hear the ball rattling down through the wreckage. The man who was watching it closely said, Lordy. But I didn't see anything I've just described. I was too busy scoping the Escalade's plates, which had both been removed. There was only the bumper. Another night of little sleep. I woke up to a call from Rob. As I pushed up in bed with the phone mashed in place between my shoulder and my ear, I surveyed the wreckage of last night's hand-wringing, the forest of beer bottles crowding the nightstand, the foxed belloc books and the wonder bread crusts, and for over a minute had no recollection of who in the world could have made such a mess. Rob's voice returned me to myself. Jarrell didn't make it, he said. Didn't... Who? Jarrell said Rob, as in the victim, as in Cleveland's best friend who was fine yesterday. The out-of-left-fieldness of what Rob was saying combined with my grog had me pedaling for traction. But he was on the up-and-up. That's what I'm saying, Cheryl. Goddamn, about how many beers did you drink in the movie? I made a mental finger count. Enough to forget Mickey Rourke then and now. I switched into speakerphone. 
dropped the receiver. How the hell are you telling me this anyway? Got a call from O'Shea. You're shitting me, I said. Nope, said Rob. Guess he's the one who's got the crush. Asshole thought we'd like to know that Cleveland's going down for murder. Jarrell's, and get this, Kent's as well. They'd like to make X's stick too while they're at it. It was what we'd expected from NOPD. O'Shea and Daydu weren't looking for nuance. They wanted to mark the case file closed. I could see how they'd gotten from Cleveland to Kent and maybe too from Kent to X, but I kept getting snagged on Jarrell up and dying when it seemed for a time he was going to pull through. A boon for the cops. A bad omen for Cleveland. So let me get this straight, I said. Jarrell died from his gunshot wound? He never specified, said Rom. What I do know, however, it makes sense he knows, Jarrell died in police protection. Poor fucking kid. I needed to do something quick with my hands. I was still in the jeans I'd been wearing last night. I rooted around in the pockets for change, and there was Bo Furlisher's card. I remembered him taking it out to show me, not me putting the card in my pocket, however. The whole encounter with the guy began to seem that much surrealer, or maybe uncanny. Yes, that was the word. That feeling you get when a PGA tourist walks over your living grave. Rob was saying, pick you up? Where else is there to go? I asked. I suddenly found I was frantically nervous. A sinister vibe was pervading the cosmos. The mustering out of a nameless foredoom. The dwarf who wore the stovepipe hat was narrowing his camera's eye. I asked him to give me ten minutes to shower, then for him to pick me up. Between the shower and the horn, I dialed up the number on Furlisher's card. It rang so many times that I thought to hang up, but then someone answered. WBRZ2, producer's room. The voice, an older sounding male's, was breathy and half irritated already. WBRZ2, producer's room. As someone who regularly dealt with the stations, I knew the cadence all too well. To fuck with them a little bit would be to throw them off their guard. WBRZ to the news station? No, he said, the costume shop. Are you the assistant producer? I said. You bet, he said. What's this about? Your name is Bo Furlisher? Agonized pause. May I speak to Bo Furlisher? Nothing forthcoming. Is there a Bo Furlisher there at the station? I am looking at his card right now. This is some kind of sick fucking joke, said the man. Why would it be a joke? I asked. Because, said the man, Bo Furlisher's dead. Now I was the one at a loss. Who is this? It's no one, I said, and hung up, feeling queasy. The feeling didn't go away. I vomited into the kitchen trash can. New Orleans passed as in a dream. The dream of a city built up on a swamp, its foundations sinking, its borders in flux. The dream of a city that measured its hours by the trickle of spirits from bottles and graves. As we passed through Lee Circle en route to the Ten, there was some kind of protest encircling the statue where Lee gazes north from his phallic outcropping. The protesters were mostly black, they appeared to be grilling the old stars and bars at the base of the monument, smoke winding up. 
In front of a banner that read, Black Lives Matter, a trumpet player raised the call. Midway there, a text from Lil. Fuck you for giving my name to Furlisher. Of course, I had never done anything close but decided to leave off on texting her back. The less she knew about the guy, the better it signaled for her at this juncture. However, he'd come into knowledge of her. The Seven Oaks nursing home was a one-star dump with pipe dreams of garnering one and a half. First things first, there were no oaks but withered palms that lined the drive between a Rallies and a Popeyes. The obese rent-a-cop in the temperate spot between the summer and the lobby didn't venture A to Z about the reason we were there. That job, it appeared, was reserved for the nurse who sat behind the horseshoe desk. She said to us just, Happy hour's over, baby. Then turned back to doling out scripts or whatever. Louisiana strong white lady, gaunt and peroxide with seen it all eyes. She perpetrated on her clipboard, then peered up at us when we stood still nearby. Somewhere after the fact, she announced, Help y'all? We're here to see Luop and Leggins. As I said, said the lady, the AM shift nurse I could only assume from her autocratic vibe, visiting hours for the morning are over. It's 10.03 AM, I said. Folks rise on the bright side in here, said the nurse. 7 to 10 is facility rules. Could she be the roadblock that checked our momentum? We had to look around the place. Walkers and wheelchairs crisscrossed through the halls. The TV up on high blared soaps. Grannies or geezers or orderlies' arms did glacial morning calisthenics. The nurse's name tag read, Shireen. Relative or friend, she said. Seeing that we hadn't budged, she must have taken pity on us. Friend of a relative, said Cajun Rob. That earned us both a fleeting glance. Leggins or Luop, she said. The grandsons, Cleveland and Jarrell. Now we had her full attention. The shooting had been on the New Orleans news, but it had been in the ether here too, I imagine. Compared to the Seven Oaks weekly newsletter, Resident Circle and Circle the Hall, it would have made a splashy headline. They're where they always are, she said, and pointed to the TV room. But I so much as hear a peep that y'all are causing a spike in them ladies' blood pressures. I swear upon this clipboard here, I will not fail to kick y'all out. The shift nurse slapped her paperwork. We edged into the TV room. It was good times or happy days. Something old school. Shenanigans inside a duplex. No reality trash for these souls who had walked 80 years through the world. The laugh track on the TV swelled. Whatever happened to laugh tracks, I thought. And then I remembered the Night of the Dwarf, how the sitcom laugh track had announced his arrival as though it were the passageway that spanned the void between our worlds. There was one other person at large in the room. This checker-slacked grandpa, asleep in his paper, and so there could be little doubt about where we should put our chairs. The lady on the left was thin, with prodigious white hair gathered up in a bun. The one on the right was a sight more substantial, metallic black hair sticking up everywhere, across her nose a splash of freckles. She sat in a wheelchair, her feet in the stirrups, lost inside a cotton nightdress. The left one wowed her eyes at us. Y'all young to be taking out rooms in this joint. We're here to talk to you, I said. She shifted her eyes to the TV again. 
The plot point resolved itself over our shoulders. She shook her head and clucked her tongue and slowly refocused her eyes on our faces. I took out the cards me and Rob carried with us, Sherl and Fouché, Videography, Nola, and handed one to each of them. While the thin woman took it and gave it a study, the larger woman only stared, the card falling off of her wrist where I'd placed it and fluttering into the folds of her gown. Don't mind, Vera, said the thin one. Vera ain't been right for months. They have to move her someplace else, someplace that can handle whatever afflicts her. But they ain't done that. Here she stays. As she studied the card, something seemed to come to her. Say, weren't y'all here a week ago? I realized she must mean X, and not for the first time I had the sensation of following my rival's trail. Every move that I made was a foregone, predecided, uncanny reprisal of X's last days. That was my colleague, I said. She handed the card back to me, raised her eyebrows. What did he ask you, so I don't repeat it? Y'all some kind of paper man, ain't you, she said. Cajun Rob said, yeah, some kind. Our colleague, week ago, what did he ask you? He asked about my grandson, Cleveland. That and other things, she said. Lord have mercy, he's in trouble. He shot a boy in New Orleans. He shot his friend. She sucked her teeth. Now that don't seem like him at all. So Cleveland's your grandson, said Rob. And Jarrell? She put a finger to her lips and cut her eyes at Vera Leggins. Don't like to say his name out loud. She dreaming, Vera, sure enough, but that don't mean she can't wake up. It's things like hearing his name that might just seem to set her off. Last time they had to come for her and tuck her up in bed three days. She know what happened the day before? Asked Rob. She know, she told us. Sure she do. She's crying, just without the sound. I looked at Miss Leggins, intent on the screen. Her eyes were vacant, faintly red, as though something ecstatic had soldered them open. Yet there was a rushing glint that moved behind the vacancy. Emotion sharp enough to cut. The freckles splashed across her nose gave her an almost girlish look. Cleveland and his friend, said Rob. They came here to visit you often, we hear. They like to come here every week. When they came here, said Rob, to set in with y'all, did they happen to set in with anyone else? Don't think so, she said. Hey there, Vera. She jogged Miss Leggins on the arm. You remember someone that these boys set in with that wasn't you or me, she said. Vera Leggins watched TV. One of her wrists sort of bent and flopped back. Whenever she do that, said Mrs. Luop, doing the wrist flopping thing, it means yes. I'm fuzzed up today, though. I got to think on it. She turned away from me and Rob as though to stay focused were far too much effort, turning back to the sitcom occurring behind us. In the story, the family's husband and father had had a flirtation with someone at work. So far as I could tell from there, at a holiday party, she's forcibly kissed him, and that's when his own wife had rounded the corner. Dad was in the doghouse now. She married that man for 21 years, Miss Luop informed us without looking down. But they got children. He's a father. Miss Luop, I said. 
but she didn't respond. Any idea who they talked to, Miss Luwak? She shot me a cold look, and I dropped my gaze. All seven Oak adored them boys, she continued. Ain't every young man come to visit his elders. You remember the skinny old white man can't talk? She jogged Vera's arm once again. There was flopping. Name Mr. Barretts. Baffetts. Baffetts. His name, Mr. Baffetts. Right, Vera? Mm-hmm. Took a liking to Cleveland and Vera's grandson. They liked him back all right, I guess. They pushed him round and round the station. She pointed to the nurse's desk. Now Vera here is in a chair. That Baffetts go the whole nine yards. He's in one of them hospital beds up on rollers. He one of them paraplegics, right, Vera? Miss Leggins did not flop her arm. She was seemingly too, too engaged in the sitcom whose gag jokes involving a philandering dad had taken a turn for the stupidly earnest. The cheated on wife and her daughter were talking, hands clasped, knee to knee, on the living room couch. The girl who was her daddy's darling was working the mother to grant him forgiveness, but not without a lesson in the graces of commitment. She patted her daughter's slim hand and began. What else do you know about Baffetts? said Rob. He can't move much, but can he talk? He talks an awful lot, I bet. Some kind of professor before he came here. Art history, philosophy, something like that. Tulane, maybe? I don't know. It was either Tulane or Loyola. You know, before he fucked it up, that Cleveland got into LSU? He got the full ride. He was going to be a tiger, too. We had heard that, yeah, said Rob, and his friend was into Swarthmore. Bright, bright boys, said Miss Luop. Makes sense they were drawn to Mr. Baffetts. Any idea what they talked about? Rob asked. Your guess is as good as mine, she said. It was mostly just only the boys that he talked to. Professor Baffetts got an air. I see them together. He's teaching a lesson. Most of the time, though, they sit in with us, eating dinner, watching shows. Mr. Baffetts gets visitors, too, lots of days. Who came to visit Mr. Baffetts? asked Rob. Why you care so much, she said, but more to me than Cajun Rob. Just want to get a sense, I said, for everything that made them them. Most papers just looking for shooters and victims, but me and Rob here, we know better than that. I really hope you do she said. Rob tried again. Who came to visit Mr. Baffetts? A few different folks visit, but mostly his son, or anyway I thought it was. Come every couple days or so. He looking like he was on the links, you know, golfing or something. Cleveland and the other one would walk a stretch with Mr. Baffetts, rolling with him, talking low, and then at the station his son would be there waiting. they break off from Mr. Baffetts, come back, sit with us. Did the boys ever talk with the son? I was hot. I fingered Bo Furlisher's card. Whoever the fuck the guy actually was who'd handed me a dead man's card. And I thought of the Escalade's license plate holder. The plate unscrewed, stashed somewhere safe, then screwed in again before driving away. I was reasonably sure that wherever it was, it started W, W, J. Suppose they say, hey, how you doing, all right? Beyond that, though, I couldn't say. But after what happened with Baffett's doctor, the sun started coming by more often. Mr. Baffett's in his room. Boys sitting here with us for hours. 
Son signed his name and go straight back. We never saw him after that. Babbitt's doctor, said Rob. What about her? she asked. What happened to Babbitt's doctor? said Rob. Ain't heard about her, said Luop. She's why that other white boy came out. The one y'all said was y'all's colleague, asking questions how she died. Amelia Kent treated Baffitts, I said. She treated a lot of us, that girl. She got shot up. A couple no-account people that wanted money, heaven knows she ain't got much. Seven Oak a home, she said, but Seven Oak won't buy you one. That Dr. Kent had to live somewhere East Bank. Must have had a family, too. The laugh track swelled. I flinched. Miss Luop was busy rehashing Kent's murder, but now only the Cajun Rob. Rob's monosyllabic encouraging noises and Miss Luop's story commingling, dissolving. Something else had drawn my ears and gradually my eyes as well. The mother on the TV show was describing the day she had first met her husband. We were just starting medical school, she began, though only your father turned into a doctor. We were riding the subway together one day. He'd been interning in the morgue. The daughter faked disgust at this. I always thought the dad seemed stiff. The laugh track swelled again. Oh, Lee, your father was a perfect charmer. He asked for my number that day on the train, not knowing that only a couple hours later we'd end up in the same classroom. I was smitten with him, and I said, See you soon, your father said, but not too soon. I think I must have frowned a little. And then your father gets this smile. I mean, he tells me. On the slab. The laugh crack crescendoed. The room swam around me. I gripped my chair back, staggered up. Cajun Rob and Miss Luop and Vera Leggins slowly, two turned one by one to stare at me as I came up beneath the wall-mounted TV and touched my fingers to the screen, as though to discern in its pixels some blind spot, something that I hadn't seen. It was the same story that Lil had told me about the night she first met X. It was bullshit, all of it, a measureless lie. She'd seen it on the morning reruns. It was probable she'd never known him at all. And I, too, remembered my probable moment, the first night I'd ever seen Lil at the college, how I had had to take a second, watching her jump up with tears on her cheeks and buck through the fire door and go down the stairs to wonder was it possible I had never once seen her in all of that time. I turned from the TV and back to the missus, a look of wildness in my eyes. And that's when Vera started screaming, her chair rolling this way and that on the floor, the whites of her eyes, all her eyes for a moment, like what she was seeing had rendered her blind. Lineup Podcast is written and produced by the Lineup staff and myself, Matthew Thompson. Special thanks to voice actor Michael Bates, author Adrian Van Young, and our partners in crime at Open Road Media. Our audio producers are Chai Dingari and Andrew Kohler. Background music is by Audioblocks, and our theme music is by Absofacto at absofacto.com. For more information on the stories we present, visit our website, thelineup.com. 
That's the-line-up.com. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well, which brings you five mysteries to your inbox twice a week. This is Matthew, and that does it for me. Till next time, keep it weird. <laughs>